Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome again to the Helix Center. I'm Gerald Hurwitz, the Associate Director at Helix. Um, I want to invite every, uh, welcome everyone, rather, to our uh, third roundtable of the day, entitled Coding, Fiction, Metafiction, the Parcellation of What Isn't, Isn't There. And I'm going to take a moment just to describe the uh, brief bios of our uh, wonderful uh, cast of participants. So first, Yonina Hoffman is an assistant professor of English at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. Yonina's research applies systems theory and phenomenology to 20th century literature and the global systems novel. Yonina's first book, The Voices of David Foster Wallace, used concepts from narrative theory, rhetoric, and phenomenology to examine the experiences of reading through novelistic progression and narrative voices. Yonina's new book project, Ending the Endless, examines the way that contemporary system novels understand the globe. Next is Peter A. Glor, who is a research scientist at the Center for the Collective Intelligence at MIT's Sloan School of Management, where he leads a 20-year project exploring collaborative innovation networks. He is also founder and chief creative officer of software company uh, Galaxy Advisors and honorary professor at University of Cologne and at Jilin University in Changchun, China. He also taught at Universidad Católica in Santiago de Chile, uh, Alto University Helsinki, and a few other uh, universities I have a difficult time pronouncing. Um, uh, University of Applied Sciences, Northwestern Switzerland, and the University of Applied Sciences in Luzerne. Earlier, he was a partner with Deloitte and PwC and a manager at U UBS. He got his PhD in computer science from the University of Zurich and was a postdoc at the MIT lab for computer science. Mark Hansen is the David and Helly Gurley Brown Professor of Journalism and the Director of the Brown Institute for Media Innovation at Columbia University. He's had over 20 years of collaborations with designers, architects, and artists, helping make work that has been exhibited in the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Whitney Museum, the Centro d'Art Reina Sofia, the London Science Museum, the Cartier Foundation in Paris, and the lobbies of the New York Times Building and the Public Theater in Manhattan. Hansen holds a BS in Applied Math from the University of California, Davis, and PhD and MA in Statistics from the University of California, Berkeley. Jonathan Kramnick is Maynard Mack Professor of English at Yale University. His research and teaching is in 18th century literature and philosophy, philosophical approaches to literature, and cognitive science and the arts. He's the author of three books. His new book, Paper Minds, Literature and the Ecology of Consciousness, asks what distinctive knowledge that literary disciplines and literary form can contribute to discussions of perceptual consciousness, created and natural environments, and skilled engagement with the world. Portions have appeared in critical inquiry, representations, and elsewhere. Before that, action and Actions and Objects from Hobbes to Richardson's, Stanford 2010, considered representations of mind and material objects along with theories of action during the long 18th century. Dr. Nikos A. Salagaros is professor of mathematics and architecture at the University of Texas at San Antonio. 
An internationally recognized architectural theorist and urbanist, his publications include the books Algorithmic Sustainable Design, Anti-Architecture and Deconstruction, A Theory of Architecture, Principles of Urban Structure, and Unified Architectural Theory, plus numerous scientific articles. He co-authored Michael, with Michael Mahaffey the books Design for a Living Planet and a New Pattern Language for Growing Regions. Salangaros collaborated with the visionary architect Christopher Alexander over more than 20 years in editing Alexander's monumental four-volume book, The Nature of Order. I think I'll stop there. Uh, there's more to say about every one of these wonderful uh, uh, participants, and we'll get started with our talk. So this is a fairly broad topic, I think, and I, I'm amazed by the wide range of uh, expertise we've assembled here today. So um, who wants to begin uh, a narrative about the narrative of this uh, talk this evening? <laughs> Why are we here? This is a, a, a conference on coding. Is there someone who can make sense of that relative to it? Me? Oh, I have no idea what the topic is about, but it's fascinating, and the participants are fascinating people with fascinating expertise, so I was sort of waiting for a, a combustion effect of, of, of different ideas coming together. Uh, I, was, I was attracted to attend because of the uh, link between uh, uh, coding and memes and literature, since I find many of the explanations I'm looking for in architectural design in literature, especially the dystopic literature, 1984 and the Brave New World. I'll stop there. All right, I'll, I'll add one more point. Um, I guess my thinking about the, the subject heading was that um, there's the idea in, uh, in coding and writing programs about, about narratives that it's fungible, that you can take it from here to there, it's all based on this code, and you can insert it wherever you want to create whatever effect you want, and it could be a literary effect, it could, become, it could be for misinformation, which was the subject of our last uh, uh, round table. Well, I could talk about coding, because I was a coder at MIT 20 years ago, and I used to dream in HyperTalk, which was a programming language. And I still think today, when I look at AI, that this is sort of the only field where people have their own language to communicate, namely Python these days for AI. And so I'm, I'm not sure whether there is uh, other fields. I mean, in a, in a sense, you have always um, like the language of mathematics and so on. But for me, in the software and in AI, it's I'm at the Center for Collective Intelligence, another level of collective intelligence, which is we have this language that people use to communicate, which is called Python or some other programming language. And from my own experience, if you're totally immersed, now I'm useless as a code about 20 years ago, that's what I was hired, then you start dreaming and thinking in that programming language. But you can't do what we're doing now in that programming language, I assume, this kind of communication. Um, fast, the geeks are, yeah, I mean, we are very introvert and we have a hard time looking each other into the eye. Right. That's one of the problems when you are a coder. <laughs> well, but I'm curious about the use of the word language here in the, um, you know, in the, in this relationship to narrative. 
Because what we're doing is a highly specialized human activity of uh, communicating thoughts and meaning versus in spoken form, which then takes, can take a kind of narrative shape. And um, um, I'm just wondering, I've always wondered, like, you know, how much one can extend the meaning of a word language across those two um, different uses. Well, in, in my small startup, we are actually, um, you don't really need to have to talk um, too much anymore. But this other level of looking at each other and sharing the code mm -hmm. seems mm -hmm. to be enough sometimes. So in that sense, it's just uh, the collective intelligence seems to get to a higher level. That's my perception. I think it could be possible to have a conversation in code. It would just be a different kind of conversation because mm -hmm. you would presumably have, it's not like you have um, language as this sort of flow, but rather you have the production of something that is encoded, that's a little bit more entrenched, mm -hmm. uh, the, the coded object, and then you put the coded object out there and then someone else looks at it and then they write their own, which actually sounds a little bit to me like a historical model of what literature is like as well, hmm. that there is an encoded object that gets placed out there and then it does take a while, it's not this, mm -hmm. but it seems similar. Hmm. I was thinking that the idea of metafiction, where you will cite one work of literature in the, within the body of a second work of literature, you're sort of lifting it, appropriating it, commodifying it in some way. And I think that coding is just rich for that reason. Whether or not it's rich in a good way or not is a different question. But that the sort of, I'm calling it the fungibility of those codes and the sort of narratives that can be taken out here and put over there reminds me of metafiction. I'm a little worried um, with the transition from coding to language, because coding is a language spoken only by people who know how to code, whereas language should be underst understandable by other people. Otherwise, you cannot communicate. If you write something in a computer language and you give it to the ordinary person, it's, it's meaningless. So I see two entirely different uh, concepts here, that, um, I, and I don't see how they can, they can get mixed. Uh, for something to be useful to society in its literature, uh, I think uh, it has to have a, a language that's uh, universally available, and a language that is even translatable, say, from English into Finnish. But uh, if you write something in, uh, in Python, it cannot be translated into any and it, spoken language. Well, that was my, where I began. Yes. But I, have the, I have some of the similar reservations as you do, Nico, around some of these questions about um, how applicable it is across communities mm -hmm. and then also about how helpful it is for our understanding of human cultures, mm -hmm. written and spoken, and aesthetic artifacts, mm -hmm. to think of them uh, in terms of the, uh, the language of, that's taken from computer science, um, which has you know, a ton of like, money and mm -hmm. cultural power behind it, but not, might not have as much explanatory force behind it. Um, I think part of what Yanina was suggesting is maybe thinking about it the other way around, which is that there's something literary about mm -hmm. the computer world, but that would mm -hmm. make it that notion of language and narrative more parasitic on what we're doing here, and also the way in which 
you know, many other people uh, live their lives and practice their communicative acts mm -hmm. and also their spend time with works of art, their aesthetic practices and acts as well. Well, you might have heard of GPT-3, which is the biggest um, AI system available, which basically allows you to describe in English what the software is supposed to do. That means you get, you can have your um, English story and then convert that into executable code, but what I have been thinking more recently is about the singularity, which basically means AI taking over. Yeah. And that basically means mm -hmm. that um, we would have to somehow communicate and the question then is uh, who, who is in the driver's seat in the end? Collective intelligence? Yes, the person who can pull the plug is in the driver's seat. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing that will save us from catastrophe. What you know, is there's something in common between code. I, mean, I think the idea that, that Coding itself may be a form of literature. It's not, I don't think that's really a yeah. something. But it reminds me that uh, musical notation is also something that most people, many people, don't know how to read. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. Yeah, thanks. Sorry about that. Musical notation is something that most people don't know how to read, but it does create a sort of. Some people refer to it as a sort of universal language. Its production, its execution, creates a kind of language. And I think that's the sort of level at which maybe coding might uh, uh, apply. And again, I guess I would contribute two things to this. One is that um, uh, in reading code, right, in, in picking up a piece of code and having a look at it, and I know this is, well, anyway, th there can be moments of beauty in it in the same way that there are moments of beauty in reading a mathematical proof or something like that, right? That there, there is an aesthetic sense that someone can look at it and go, Wow, look what you did here. Or look that little trick, that that's amazing. Right? So there's there is a, a there is an aesthetic sense that comes along with it. I think the second thing is that in, in my mind the previous discussion was a little bit upside down. I think that um, coded systems are creating organizing into systems of power in our world, and part of the reason why they've gotten away with and that they are as powerful as they are is that there is this gap between the language that we are using to communicate and, and code, right? The fact that people don't understand how a computer works is a problem, right? The fact that they don't understand the basics of, 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 of getting a lot of reverb and that makes me nervous, like I'm saying something awful, but um, <laughs> the fact that people don't understand, how, you know, the, 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 uh, suggests then that, that, that um, it, it's difficult to be Let's say a responsible citizen, right? In our in our contemporary um, uh, political or cultural uh, 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 setting, because it um, you need to understand the basics of how a computer works, I think, mm -hmm. and and something of how code works, right? So I think that um, uh, not having that ac access to that language um, is is. Uh, is, is leaving us open to a lot of difficulties uh, that we've seen. That's an interesting proposition, Mark. I mean, um, um, I mean, one hears all the time that we need basic scientific literacy, and I agree with that just as a, you know, article of faith, but it's a problem, and we, we've seen all too clearly in the last couple of years, that it's a huge problem that uh, when citizens lack kind of fundamental scientific literacy about, you know, the nature of things like 
what the, what's the difference in climate and weather, you know, how do pathogens work, that sort of stuff. Um, it seems, however, that like um, how it is that code works and a computer works seems to be a different kind of thing. And the way that, I, mean, I don't know how a plane works. I got in a plane and to fly, I just flew, you know, across the country last week. Um, I, my iPhone and my computer, I feel, are sort of analogous to that in a way. Um, I, I'm curious to know how the, what the argument is that there is something uh, sort of threatening to democracy or wrong about not having a, uh, citizens and not having a capacity for coding. So it doesn't seem to me to be intuitive in the same way that, say, there's a real problem when people don't have, a, uh, don't have access to science or don't understand the way that science works. I mean, I, I feel first of all, there's a there's a there's a uh, increasing sense in which science itself is computational and is inheriting. This is driving me crazy, um, and is inheriting. Um, yeah, it's a problem. Um, so I, I think what I'm what I'm suggesting, and, and, I, and I don't I don't think it's it it's. Uh, it, it's it's either earth-shattering or, or new. The founder of Python, uh, or the, the gentleman who created it, um, uh, has a very long essay um, uh, talking. I, I guess it was a, a DARPA proposal or something about about creating um, uh, a, a programming language, and the, the title of it was um, "Programming for Everyone." And the idea was, is simply that um, we. Uh, teach everyone to read and write, even though we don't expect them to become poets or mm -hmm. writers. And by the same token, we should teach everyone to code or to understand programming or the act of it, um, because otherwise we are uh, significantly removed from the technological systems that um, that we rely on. And I would say that um, saying that this is a shiny box that we interact with and I don't really have to know how it works means that now I'm cut off from all the little things that it could do in terms of surveillance and other things. I don't have the capacity to ask questions about what this is doing. And my capacity, my, the fact that I don't have capacity to ask questions means that there are significant systems of power in our world that are just happily going along doing their thing. And with my position in a journalism school, I feel like the one thing that I can offer them is access to, um, to the way these systems start to work, the way power builds up in a technological system. And, and, and some of that can start with something as modest as learning how to code. Yeah. At I least that's my that's, opinion. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with what you say in the sense that if computers or the phone were perfect and there would be no bad people on the world, we wouldn't need to know how to code because you would trust and everything would work but unfortunately there is pishing and so on and uh... right no I get that I, I mean I, I feel like I'm I have the you know uh, the same suspicion about you know what my phone is doing and tracking and uh, and the, the threats to democracy there and also just the general you know uh, commodification of everything that happens there with and, and yet I don't know the infrastructure of how it's encoded and I guess I'm wondering about the connection from, this is taking us a bit far away from questions of narrative perhaps, but still seems important to pursue. Like, um, what the, how we move from the one level of implementation to another. Um, and, and would in fact knowing something about coding um, uh, give me an additional capacity for resisting the ways in which my phone may or may not be tracking what I'm doing, you know, um, uh, uh, and so forth. I think you could bring that pretty 
easily back to literature. Great. In, because, I mean, really, what are, we, what are we doing here? We're asking, in any object or in any phenomenon of human life, what is encoded and why? Mm -hmm. And in the phone, there are some things that are encoded that allow us to use the phone for our purposes, but there are some things that are encoded in the phone that allow counter purposes or silent surveillance type purposes. But the same is true for a novel. I mean, there are certain things that are encoded that are for the purposes of enjoyment, and there are other things that are encoded ideologies for the purposes sure. of something perhaps behind the scenes. And so, I mean, yes, we teach people to read and to write, but do we teach them very well to see the sort of broader context of power within right. what they are reading and writing? Maybe that is something that they also need to know. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. And thank you for putting it that way. You know, that's really perfect. Because like, um, uh, it extends Mark's initial point about uh, questions of pedagogy um, and, uh, and the importance of sustaining not just or uh, kind of basic level computational pedagogy as well as you know teaching and sort of fundamentals of science but also humanistic pedagogy um, and uh, what it means to understand our culture um, from uh, from a more traditional humanistic perspective um, for the for these kinds of reasons yeah. Yeah, may I disagree with all that has been said up until now, I, I don't think the solution to our, uh, saving our civilization is for people to learn how to code and to actually be able to code the cell phone. Because I believe that that actually pushes them in the direction of being embraced by technology while technology is subjugating the free spirit and taking people away from reading literature so that literature has decreasing value because people are not reading. People are looking at their cell phone all the time. So pushing them to learn the code of the cell phone is, is not going to, to steer society away from a total dependence and a total domination by the big tech companies that are taking over their lives. Taking them away from looking at art, listening to music, and reading literature today's literature or the classical literature. It's all going, 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 going. So Nick was then saying we should take away the cell phones of everybody, no TikTok <laughs> anymore, and put some uh, world-class literature on there. Well, there could be an effort to, uh, and I'm not so sure I think it will work, because I don't want to say I'm advocating this, but there's a, there's a movement toward, all right, well, we're going to take coding and have it write stories. I mean, right. it's still in the future a little bit, but one of our talks tomorrow on the, the general GPT-4, is yeah. it? Yeah, GPT-4 yeah, GPT yeah. is the next. Yeah, yeah. three. We'll talk about that and the ability of a, of a computer program to write a story, let's right. say. Now, again, I'm not advocating for it, but it's happening or it's being developed. There's an interesting, I think, trope about that, which is, and this, I think, speaks to your criticism, although it doesn't Full invalidated at all. Namely, we find that a little creepy. You know, like I'm reading a story, but there's really like a, a text beneath that. That's the real story, right? And that's that's a, a little that's in a lot of horror stories about the HAL 9000 computer, right? But that's a great point. Yeah. Why do you find it's creepy? Because you don't know what's going on. That's right. If you knew, and that's the same as with why do I want to get the vaccine because I don't trust the vaccine that it's not messing up my body because I don't know what's going on. And then we are back to the argument. 
if you know how to code, perhaps you know what's going on, and then you don't think it's creepy if you get the phone. So you can blame literature for, for fostering this trope about the creepiness of, of computer programs. I mean, I think it's, it's hard not to be, you know, in, in the world that you, Nina, and I are in without, you know, agreeing with Nico's point, you know, just quite quickly, which is, you know, um, people should be reading works of literature and encountering works of art. I think, I, I mean, I think that's still compatible entirely with more people knowing more about how to code. I mean, it's, uh, which is just to say that people should know as much as they can about the world. Um, and uh, I think from, the, pers from a, the perspective of the humanities, um, uh, we often feel like our sector of the world, which is as real and as important as anything else, um, is just not drawing as much attention and, is, uh, and, and uh, doesn't have the same kind of um, purchase within the university or among the young or, um, or getting, get, have as much support mm -hmm. from uh, higher educational establishment as it used to. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's again, um, it's hard not to feel like these conversations are sometimes weighted against um, uh, a more sort of aesthetically oriented view of the world and the kind of capacities for flourishing and democracy that, that, that they can bring. Um, um, and this speaks to the point that you just raised about, um, you know, the future of computers writing works of literature, which, you know, is an interesting thing to contemplate. I've read some of the earliest stuff there, just like I've seen some of the computer art that, that's been generated in the visual domain, and it's all interesting and provocative. There's nothing wrong with it as such. What's some, what, can be, uh, what can be sometimes troubling about it is when it's bundled together with, into a kind of reform picture for say, higher education in a democratic society um, in which it is, you know, deemed to be like the future. Um, and then it just becomes, you know, to me at least, and I think, you know, for reasons that are real, just kind of ugly. Um, not ugly as such. There's nothing wrong with computers writing stories. That's, again, interesting. Um, ugly in some of the directions that that's pushed and some of the kind of, like, wide-eyed, sort of, like, belated Alvin Tufflerism that it's sort of, you know, made to serve. Like, the future is here. It looks like computers writing stories. We need to put all of our money there, and we need to basically just, you know, starve the people who want to just sit around a table like this and talk about a book. Um, and, uh, and that way lies, I think, you know, a kind of disaster. But I, so, so, obviously, the it's sort of the idea that we teach people to code is not just all right, and, and we'll, we'll teach them basic, and we'll, we'll hear as a variable, and we'll, we'll assign it the number five, and we can add two to it, and then we can do it. Like, that's when I, when I describe, or when I think about, or when in my classes we talk about how computation works, um, you know, there's a, there's a, 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 a well-defined notion of what, what we're looking at, or at least what I try to put across in terms of, in terms of uh, sort of computational literacy, Right. The step one is that coding step, like the functional literacy. How does it work? Um, then there's a critical literacy. Right. The 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 idea that um, uh, you can you have enough capacity to say why does this look the way it does? Right. I mean, t technology relentlessly tries to make itself look invisible. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's not there. And so we want to have the capacity to say there's something here, and and why does it look that way? Could it look some other way? So there's functional literacy, um, there is critical literacy, and then a rhetorical literacy. 
right? Which is that all of these things are, there is no, you know, optimal iPhone, right? It's, it's, a, it's a thing and it comes from human deliberation and it's a settling in some way. Um, and it, it itself gives off a kind of, has a rhetorical function, right? It, again, it makes us feel modern. It makes us feel connected or something like that. So, so you can deepen all of these concepts and, and they, they depend in many ways on a sort of um, humanity style interpretation, right? I, I, I bring into my class people like Joanna Drucker or something who, you know, makes the point about about data versus capta, what is given versus what is taken, right? Like, like that the, the, these things make the teaching of code, right, a, a richer, f fuller, um, experience so that people do come away, or presumably students do come away, better understanding the systems of power that that circulate around um, technologies in one form or another. And for, for someone in a journalism school, that's important because journalists are the explainers of last resort in our society, and if they can't call shenanigans on something that's happening, then I don't know who's going to do it. Yeah, I'm afraid journalists have been uh, singularly unsuccessful in alerting the world to to all the bad things and the manipulations that are occurring by, I, I by high tech. Extremely, uh, an extreme, an extreme <laughs> a harsh, position. A yeah. harsh, a harsh comment. I, well, extreme, yeah, sure. Yeah, okay, I, I stand, I stand <laughs> by <laughs> uh, I, I want to, to, uh, to answer to the challenge that Peter threw at me. As in response to my, to my earlier comment, uh, uh, Peter, you said that uh, therefore we should um, uh, make people um, appreciate literature and, and art uh, better, but uh, nobody can make anybody do anything. Uh, the only way you can make someone do something is by tricking them into thinking that they're getting an advantage by doing something. So all the technology that we have has tricked us by offering some utility for our lives. That's why we have adopted it. So, so becoming slaves to the technology it was a step-by-step -step process because it gave us the power, increased power, and we felt that. So the only way to get someone to, to, to study literature today is to make it advantageous in an evolutionary sense. If you do this, then you get an advantage, evolutionary advantage, and not by the academic. You have to take this course because it's required. Yes, but I mean, thank you very much for throwing the ball back to me. Um, but I think you are um, neglecting one point, and that's beauty. Because what you raise is a very um, cynical utilitarian view, and that's unfortunately the main motivation, particularly in capitalist societies. But then there is this other aspect, and I think it has been raised, and if you look at pieces of world art, and I'm not sure whether the computer will actually ever get there, because GPT-3, it can write something that sounds like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings and so on, but it will never be, or even if you go to some um, um, higher level literature um, on the same level. Until now. Perhaps it will come at one point, but I'm not sure. Well, is there something that you could say, or can we itemize a number of things that we believe really distinguishes literature from anything that might be available uh, through coding? Is there Yes. Is there a way to itemize that? That's different. I mean, I was about to pick up on that. I wanted to respond to Peter's comment about we don't understand how it works and therefore we're afraid. Because I actually think that frequently I don't know how a piece of literature works 
But that is the cause for wonder and delight rather than fear. And that is because I think the distinguishing fact of a piece of literature from something that might be encoded for utilitarian purposes is that it's okay for something like literature to give us something we understand, something that exceeds us, and something that is so saturated with meaning that it can't be reduced to a single purposive goal. And that this kind of brings us back to a point that was coming up in earlier conversations, the question of trust. Because the unique compact, I think, rhetorically between reader and author is ideally one of trust, whereby the question of trust is a very different issue when we look at code, because we know that the person who is encoding something has perhaps more defined purposes than the literary author. I just disagree about one thing for myself. Uh, Finnegan's Wake scares the daylights out of me. <laughs> That's because it shows you something about yourself you don't want to admit. Granted. <laughs> this is a rather pedestrian response, but it, for many people that I know, especially younger people, and people who have reading disorders, for instance, the phone is their lifeline to literature because they're listening to books on tape. They're listening to audio books. And for someone who's been dyslexic all their lives, it's like a whole world opens up to them. And for many people who are very busy, I mean, I'm in the world of literature all the time. If I'm walking in Central Park, I'm listening to a novel. It's, it's the only time I have to go into fiction rather than professional books. And there's also so, And that's through this little device. And uh, there's, a, um, there's a, among, uh, the young who spend most of their time on social media, there's a lot of feedback between online activity and staring at your phone and then also reading, which is a lot of active book talk on TikTok, for example, which is all about, you know, the analog object. It's not about the small, shiny thing. It's a, and it, in fact, features usually, you know, the kind of the, the, the haptic uh, aesthetics of books, right? You know, what they look like, how they feel in your hands. And they'll show it, I've been reading this, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so in fact, like there's, it's not just a you know a kind of uh, a dichotomous phenomenon. I mean, there's all just a uh, this, the digital world and the and the handheld world and the social media world has created you know all, you know a renewed interest in literary artifacts and objects as it has in you know painted and sculpted ones as well. Things that exist, however off your phone, not that you're listening to as you're walking through Central Park, but as you're also just, you know, sitting and holding your hands and reading. Um, and I think that that shows, you know, I think that's, first of all, terrific. Um, I think it's an interesting cultural phenomenon in its own right. <clears throat> but I also think it shows the, you know, the, the, the viability and the perdurance of, uh, of, you know, of the aesthetic domain as something that has both a purchase on, you know, an appeal to, you know, humanity across the board, um, but also is worth, you know, cultivating and spending time on, time with and supporting, ultimately. Yeah, because I listen to something and yeah. then I will go buy the book. Yeah. And what I mostly was converted by was Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> Listening to Finnegan's Wake is a true adventure. Why should you never think all of that. I, I want to return to you and Ina's response, because even though I made fun of the Finnegan's Wake and fear, I like the idea that you mentioned trust. And I think that it's interesting that when I asked the question, all right, well, can we start to itemize differences between coding generated art, not even just literature, and, and, and literature, you said something about trust, which I think is a wonderful sort of, it's an emotion, it's an emotion. You're expressing an emotional thought. Every, so far, everyone else has made instrumental arguments. 
about. And I, I, as a psychiatrist, I like hearing, okay, so what about, how are you feeling about this? And where does the feeling that is evoked by art, is that matchable? Can we match that? Because I think you're right. You might be onto something. Trust, it would be, it'd be hard to earn it if out of a machine. So perhaps how does an author um, earn trust? Because if you look at Lord of the Ring, <laughs> the original one, it was huge success. And then that sequel that Disney has been producing, the reception was horrible because they were just applying all the formulaic things. So that means they didn't get the trust. Is that what you would say? Or Do you mean the movie adaptation? Yes, exactly. Oh, I see. So the movie adaptations to the sequels failed to earn trust because they were too formalized according to like the cinematic industry. Is that? Yes, uh, they were too robotic. They were human oh, beings writing, yeah, but, they by, were, by computer but they were just them, uh, applying some formulas. And so that seems to me an, an example of what you said, but I'm just, I'm not an expert in that field. I would say that probably sounds right because viewers of media are pretty savvy to, to tropes. And yeah, I remember seeing The Lord of the Rings, the second movie, and it's just trope after trope kind of piled on each other, which feels like it falls short of the kind of meaning saturation that I want from another, from a single other human being. I don't know if that answers your question. But well, I think your question also is, it was initially like, would, can we imagine uh, um, a novel written entirely by a computer being a, as appealing as a novel written by a human yeah. being. I, you know, I, I think if you assume time and you know uh, exponentially increasing computing computer power, I, I have no no difficulty really imagining that, um, um, and no strong feelings either either way. Well, okay, um, well then why would it be difficult for? Let's say it would be a challenge. What, 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 what are they surmounting to meet that challenge, right? They're surmounting anything that requires, you know, uh, human intelligence to create. Um, and, that's, and, and what's difficult about that, you know, I think it's probably Peter's domain, or maybe Mark more than mine, um, but uh, um, I think it's, you know, it's, it would be an, an analogous problem to anything that requires, uh, again, human intelligence to do, whether or not that's write a novel or, you know, drive a car or make scrambled eggs for you in the morning. Um, uh, all of which have been, you know, really hard things to do. I mean, uh, it seems to me, I, have, I mean, the most powerful advances in, in artificial intelligence, as far as I know, and that's very little, um, have been in, you know, kind of narrow but deep domains. Um, uh, chess? Chess, for example, sort of paradigmatically <coughs> so, I suppose. Um, um, anything as kind of, that involves like as many factors as you know, would go into writing a novel, or again, you know, making you scrambled eggs in the morning, um, uh, is going gonna, is gonna to be much harder to do, but not inconceivable. So Magnus uh, Nielsen, the, the, the reigning... Carlson. Chess, Carlson, thank you. Um, he walked out on this uh, uh, match because I think something about the first several moves and because of some previous report that his opponent may cheat but that was I think deep... something about his I think this is opening move that's it right now a human wouldn't do this I know you're cheating right so here you have no but that but actually wasn't that intuiting that a human would do it that no. like a 
that, uh, that the human machine. Was that no, no, I think he, he was using a, sh a computer. Oh, I see that. I meant the human was would cheat in chess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He recognized that gotcha. was being generated by a robot mm -hmm. instead of a human. Yeah, and, interesting. Uh, so it's interesting. So here you have something that's gotten right to the pinnacle of computer programming and, and beaten humans, and it does beat humans. But it's missing something. For the, from the perspective of human observers, it's missing something, right? The, the, uh, Carlson was able to pick that up, it seems. But I would not go to chess for that. That was solved in the game of Go several years ago. Right. Because Go became uh, the, 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 uh, the deep mind became the Go champion. Right. But I'm saying there's still things that humans perceive about the difference between their opponent when it's a human versus it's a, whether it's a human versus a computer. And I'm wondering if that perception has something to do with what we would find deficient in a computer-generated work of literature. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, and I'm, sure. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you. Maybe in the very far distant future, even that difference would be taken away. Um, in, in the visual arts, where I more, have more experience being a painter, in my youth. In the visual arts, uh, AI can produce paintings today that are better than the professional visual artists. I think we have reached that. I cannot speak about um, AI-generated literature, but uh, the uh, AI-generated paintings, depending uh, uh, word, um, uh, text-to-image AI programs can generate very beautiful uh, paintings because they uh, they sum uh, the um, opinions of, of uh, individuals say ten to the tenth number of individuals, which is an extraordinary number. So that they can generate a very beautiful painting. When you go to a contemporary art gallery, it's mostly garbage. So there's a huge disconnect between what the computers are generating and what the, the uh, so-called so okay. artists so are the, generating. The Detroit Museum of Art has a new uh, exhibition of Van Gogh, and they, they did it because they were the first American museum to embrace Van Gogh. And the, the reviewers in, in America, the Armory Show, said, this guy stinks, he's terrible, and of course he's about, he's about the most popular artist, uh, visual artist now. That's a trajectory that some human artists have pursued, and we would say, well, that's a form of imagination and uh, innovation. Is, that's incorrect. That's okay. incorrect. That is propaganda in order for, uh, for a certain clique to make enormous amounts of money by selling garbage and by promoting uh, talentless uh, charlatans. But, but somebody you include Van Gogh in that? No. no. Well, what you are saying is totally out of date because it happened 100 years ago. Okay? I, I don't agree with your extrapolation that what happened to Van Gogh. The same thing happened to the Impressionist in Paris. That could all be extrapolated to the garbage we see produced today and put in, uh, in art galleries and, and uh, displacing beautiful works of art from our museums. Uh, as our museums decommission wonderful uh, pieces of, uh, of art and sculpture and fill, uh, fill it with contemporary uh, art that's supposed to be uh, art, but it's really garbage. And there's a definition. And here's where AI can judge whether it's garbage or whether it's art. Because AI has this uh, 10 to the 10th piece of data of, 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 uh, of human reactions. Does this create a, um, 
a positive emotional reaction in the body. And we have the sensors and the medical data to see. If it creates distress, then it's a piece of garbage. If it creates a positive healing reaction, according to all the medical sensors that can be worn today, instead of having to go to the laboratory, wearable sensors, if it's positive, then it's, it's, it's a valid piece of art because it helps you to cope with the stress. Well, this is, this is, this is, okay, I'm sorry. So here's a wonderful example, I suppose, of where not knowing how a computer functions and not knowing how something works leads you to a kind of crazy con conclusion. And I'm, so I'm assuming that what you were saying was meant ironically, um, because the AI, like, first of all, Dali doesn't work by hooking up responses or anything like that. But, but suppose it did, the, the idea that a set of measurements well, what are we going to measure to, to capture our aesthetic reaction? What are we going to choose? How are we going to choose to, to measure that? To, I will to put some, to, uh, hold on a second. So, so, so first of all, so first of all there's, there are choices in what to choose to represent lived experience and to even ex to, to stop and to think what, that, that there are choices, right? There are different ways of, of, of expressing it. Do you talk to someone before seeing something and then interview them afterwards? It's a little more qualitative, but is that something? Like, why do we reduce it to a kind a physiological response, first of all, and then secondly, what Dali does is is it's based on sort of collections of data where captions are matched with images, and and the the obvious question around all almost all AI pro, pro, uh, 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 processes now are like what are the data that they were trained on? Who are the people who even if they were hooked up in some way, who are they? What cultural references do they have? What what you know what are you showing them that's 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 consistent or not. And I think that, that some of this discussion is, what we're missing here is it's sort of not AI versus the artist. It's sort of AI and the artist, right? If, you, if you've tried Dali, you, you can try something, type something out and put some text in and get an image and go, well, that's, that's not really what I like. And so you alter a little bit and you alter a little bit and you alter a little bit and you sort of start to work with it, right? But I think the the, to go back to the literacy, and then I'll shut up, but to go to like the literacy question one more time, that idea that you are typing something into Dali to get an image and then typing something else and to get an image, slowly Dali is training you to do what it expects so that you get the answer that you want. In the exact same way that when you Google something, right, and if you don't get back the set of results that you want, you don't say, bad Google, you say, oh, I did something wrong. And in that moment, Google is training you how to interact with it. And if you don't recognize those training moments little by little right that's how the systems of power work that's how things start to uh, to, to, to take to exercise control in a way Sorry. But are you saying, Mark, we are already going there? Because oh, really it's there. Because exactly. Because I mean, there's no question. Our um, students don't have that connection, right? We, we don't believe have Google more than uh, my own also, um, the, yeah, common sense. I mean, to return to Nico's point, I mean, the, the, um, uh, here I think I disagree entirely. I mean, in, in the we're sense, uh, with you. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, uh, that, uh, I think that, first of all, I mean, like, I don't believe that you could actually, like, hook people up and and get a picture of what their responses mm -hmm. to works of art are. But could even if you, you could do it. You could do, you, you could get a set of, to. you could get a set of correlations. What they would tell you would, is actually an entirely, you know, uh, debatable 
phenomena or question. Like, uh, but yes, of course you can record what's happening at various you know levels of you know your somatic reaction when you are presented with an art object or anything else. Whether that tells you anything meaningful is another question. Um, but uh, so that's one thing. Even if you could, I mean, the assumption that for work of art to be beautiful, what it does is make you feel calm and happy or whatever your phrase was. Um, uh, that also seems to me to be like just, you know, wrong. Um, uh, 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 and that, you know, what you called bad art would produce a somatic response of like irritation or something else. Uh, and that that ha somehow indicates the poor quality of the work also just seems to be wrong. But there's a set of nested assumptions here about uh, what kind of response artworks ought to have, whether or producing you, that I think are debatable about whether or not actually, like you know, whether to the, where the criterion of judgment ought to lie, whether it should be in, you know, in just an immediate response by someone who has no relationship or education in, uh, in, uh, in how to uh, encounter and understand uh, works of art, um, or should be in, you know, some uh, should be in. Uh, among those who are, you know, have actually spent time with and are educated in um, art and art history, all those things are uh, are actually to be discussed and debated. Um, so, uh, um, I mean, and again, provide an argument for it seems to me actually to return to our earlier discussion, you know, fundamental artistic and aesthetic literacy, because um, uh, it's not the case that you can just simply like take someone, you know, uh, and put them in a museum. And they will understand what it means to actually look at, you know, a Van Gogh, for example, to use a, uh, um, a painter that was mentioned earlier, or the works of the French Impressionists, or um, let alone a more sort of difficult and challenging work of contemporary art. Um, all of those things actually require, you know, um, uh, discussion, education, learning, you know, experience, um, uh, which you know ought to be available to as many people as, uh, as possible. Well, actually, Jonathan, we have exactly done that experiment. In Cologne, mm -hmm. in the Katekovitz Museum, mm -hmm. this year is one of the tools we developed at MIT. It's the happy meter. It measures my mood based on... The happy, I'm sorry, there's something so dystopian and frightening about yeah, the expression, I the happy meter. I have many papers about that, and <laughs> it has been used. Okay. It measures my happiness okay. based on heart rate, acceleration, voice emotion. Mm. And in the Katekovitz Museum in Cologne, we have given that to participants, to people, and then we have measured which rooms, which paintings, and which sort of mm. watching style actually trigger the strongest emotional, react the strongest emotional reaction. Mm -hmm. And what is the result? Um, the result is that it very much matters on the, on the tour guide. On the tour guide? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is to say, which actually, which is part of what I was saying earlier, which actually it depends partly on how the work is presented. Exactly. So that like, was you a stronger know, how, you know, result uh, than which, which piece of art was. And, and, well, and also like, you know, how, how even in just a very quick way, how the, the, uh, the person viewing the work of art, you know, is, is led into it, is led to understand it. Um, the kind of, it's, you know, how that person has been taught. Yes. Um, so it's entirely, it seems to me like, Obvious and arguably so that if someone is actually shown through a museum through by an educated, you know, articulate, personable tour guide, they will have they'll be happier on your happy meter because they will actually just be able to understand what they're seeing a bit more. Uh, it makes another point about context. The context is always because mm -hmm. if you look at the um, um, Mona Lisa, there the context yeah. is I have this raised expectation and I see that sort of 
vaguely interesting phase, but it, because it is the Mona Lisa, I must feel this is the biggest piece of art on the world. So the context has already been set, and I'm sure I have never done that with Happy Media, but I would expect that uh, I would get such a reaction. Uh, I, would, I would like to clarify tremendous confusions here that have been thrown on the table. I was referring to unconscious reaction of the human body based on the happy meter, exactly those um, uh, wearable sensors, but unconscious responses of the body without priming, and they occur within the first one second or even few milliseconds. Whereas if you explain the, the art, you are uh, conditioning the individual to like something. And the second point is that when you are uh, looking at the context of 100 people from the Mona Lisa, of course you have to like it. So a controlled experiment has to be carried out with the individual measuring only the first, the second or less of unconscious reaction. But there's, but this, again, I just think that's a wrong understanding or a misguided understanding about I'm what sure the... I'm sure you would say so. Uh, about what the, but that's an opinion. But, wait, but there's a different... Point, I think of course, like and we have a difference of opinion. I just wanted to explore that difference because I think it's actually, I think it's an interesting one, which is that, you know, there is on the one hand a model which, you know, actually has, you know, some real history, historical, you know, significance to it. That what aesthetic experience is all about is just like this, you know, raw, um, unschooled, you know, immediate thing where you just start, bring someone in and you show them something. Yeah, yeah, but I don't think that's really the way that art tends to work. Yeah, no, but um, we're talking about something very, very recent. These measurements... Yes, I know. We're talking about a technology that's recent, but we're also but he's talking about an understanding about of what art is that goes way back. Um, and well, actually, and we have one millennia, millennia of understanding what art is, and we have contradictory opinions during millennia. <coughs> so that, that doesn't settle anything. <laughs> what I'm proposing is that these re this recent technology actually settles the issue because it measures positive body responses. And here's where I disagree with you because you want to uh, validate equally a work of art that creates negative and stressful body responses. I disagree with that. I think that the purpose of art should be to help in healing the human body. Because the human body experiences daily stresses just from the act of living. What about Guernica? Which is that art right. should yeah. disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. Why can't we have both? I like to be disturbed. Yes. And art well, should also be interesting in a lot of works of art that are interesting. But I, I, I think what's been lost here, and I was Surprised, Nikos, that you took the angle, the, the direction you did, given that the first point you seemed to make was coding and computers are negative and we should be immersing ourselves in literature and art. And I actually was trying to point out that maybe there are things that coding cannot possibly provide, like, for example, whether or not they produce really beautiful paintings, there may yet be something that it's missing. I think it's wrong to conclude that when people say they don't mind being disturbed by art, that the whole point of art and the, the, the end point of art is to be disturbed. I mentioned Van Gogh because there was a point in the history when he disturbed some people. And now most people, I'm sure, have happy meters going wild when they <laughs> see him, right? And that trajectory, that development, is a wonderful thing about, human, about humanism, right? And I don't see that in computers. That's the thing. The computers can take a huge a sampling of people's reactions and look at different works of art that are considered wonderful by experts or not, and it could generate another Mona Lisa, perhaps. But when it comes to being equal to an artist who can create innovation that may 
put us off kilter a little bit, but then later we learn to love. That's something I think, I believe computers are not going to be able to do for a long, long time, if at all. Why? I don't know. I was asking all of you. You're the expert. No, but I mean, you said you believe, but why? Well, I got thrown into this loop because Nico started telling me why they could do that. <laughs> okay. Well, right. At first, you were, yeah. yeah. You're hung up on Van Gogh, who, who uh, according to the uh, 17 or 18th century sensibility of realism, disturbs some people, but the colors are very beautiful, and it's slightly disturbing, but not as disturbing as garbage we, we have seen later that, that really create anxiety, measurable by the happy meter, okay? Without an explanation, but uh, our uh, art schools have been uh, teaching students that the goal of contemporary art for the last uh, several decades is to disturb and create anxiety, which I think is totally wrong. And here is where, here is where I think I would like to put two things together. I mentioned earlier that uh, um, healing comes to the body, not by looking at code, but by looking at beauty. But if we go according to accepted contemporary standards of beauty, we get disturbed because it creates anxiety. It's not beautiful. It has switched the function of beauty. And now only computers can tell you what's beautiful. See, I would, I would prefer not to debate that particular point further because it's a great topic. And I'm not arguing, I don't want to argue about it. I don't think we should be debating that any longer because the real issue is the one I'm trying to direct us to, which is let's imagine that uh, there's this wonderful facsimile and it may be superior to what the garbage that they're putting out of art schools now. That's okay, I'll, I'll accept that. What is it that, uh, is it still the case that there is some, is there some spirit in, in human creativity that computers will or will not be able to produce. And you think, Jonathan, that they will be able to eventually I, produce that. I, I, I don't think I have an, any idea. I mean, I, I wouldn't be, I mean, I wouldn't rule it out, I guess what I would say. I mean, like, doesn't seem to be any, it seems to be par for the course for any complicated human creative activity. Um, and therefore, it's a, it's a problem for, again, like Peter's world to solve. Um, but it doesn't seem to me to be, like, intractable. Mm -hmm. so I, think that's the, um, I think part of the thing, I myself feel a little bit confused with parts of this discussion because we are talking about, on the one hand, what is today, then we are talking about what AI is going to do in the future and whether it's going to do that or not. Is AI going to be able to produce a work of literature or art that in any way is going to contain all of the emotions that are presently in a work of literature or in a work of art, and all the personal experiences of the person who wrote it or who painted it. Is AI one day going to be able to do that? You maybe uh, have the answer to that, but as far as I know, we don't know yet. So there are people who write about all the things that AI is going to do in the next 25, 50 years, such as Max Tegmark and others, but we'll have to wait and see. But so I don't see how that directly connects with the bigger or more general subject, which is coding. Coding is not only about creating literature or art, it's also about all the positives that we have from being able to use the computer, the iPhone, and so on. Yes, there are, of course, plenty of negatives. Uh, one of our uh, uh, 
people who was here at, in the audience, a neuroscientist from Italy, was telling me how his son doesn't want to read anything because he's looking at his computer. So, said my grandson is the same, well, he's still here. I said, my grandson the same, he doesn't want to read, he's constantly as well. Yeah, there are negatives, but there are also plenty of positives in terms of people being in contact with each other, being in touch with each other. So I'm a little bit um, confused, if you will, about the direction that we are taking. And as far as art goes, I think the example you gave of the, was it in Cologne, the experiment with the heart rate and so on? Cologne, we did an experiment in the, yeah. the Colwitz Museum, yeah. Yeah, so I think that already gives you an indication that wherever that research is, is nowhere near reality. If you are going to a museum and there are five paintings, one next to each other, and you have somebody explaining it to you, what you are reacting to, is not really that much the painting as what the person is telling you. Now, to, and, and that's why I'm, I, I feel when I go to a museum, a big part of it is a waste of time because I'm seeing so many things one after the other by the time I come out, I don't know what I've really seen. If I see in front of one art and I spend 10 minutes in front of it, I begin to appreciate and feel something that I can never feel walking through a museum. So to, to test me just because they think that, oh, you know, this is a very exciting color here. He put it here especially because he does this and that. Doesn't tell me anything about the art or the ability of that particular uh, feeling machine to assess anything. It's too, too early for it. It's too well, actually, it's not too early and it's just that I didn't get the idea, and I have to thank Nikos for giving me the idea of having people doing exactly, exactly ex experiment you described by exposing them to different pieces of art to compare which one is the best. Yes, and but, if you, but, if, but, if, but if, let me just say this because I want to say this clearly. If, you, if your criteria for what is the best is a measurable response of happiness, you're going to get a lot of shit. Yes. You know, I mean, like, uh, yes, just a lot of fucking of bad art and, uh, and bad literature, especially. Oh, so, like, so, uh, so, like, the, the, again, I would just, just, just disagree with the kind of basic premise. Um, anyway, that's, uh, you, I hear a lot of laughter and <laughs> nodding, so all this stuff. Uh, we, we will support the, this premise that you disagree with if they are unconscious responses. Unconscious or not, I think no, it's no, just no, it's a, a, big a ton of shit. Big difference. If it's unconscious, it's the body using its evolved mechanism that help in its survival. And if it identifies positively with the art, then it's a positive response that's good for the health. If it has to be explained, then you are conditioning. Uh, no, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about, in fact, I think probably most art that I would find interesting, you have to have training to, to, uh, to appreciate and understand. And I think most art that produces the kind of evolved health response you're talking about is going to be crap. Um, well, then we have we have opposite opinion, and we disagree violently. I, I, I think I think Mark's happy meter is going to get too low if we don't let him speak. First of all, I, I don't like the idea of a, hap, a happy meter. Like I, I don't like the idea. That it feels like it, it feels too close to like a mood ring, and I and I, I don't want to. I just I don't. 
But but I, I do. I, there is a, a moment that we could pop this up and talk about narrative for a second, right? So so that you know, think about what what the, the the ways in which we're taking physiological data, whether we should be doing that or not, or whether it's instantaneous or not. The idea that the AI optimizes something. The, the idea, the narrative that comes along with it, that it is there's an efficiency there in applying the AI. There's an efficiency that, that comes along with it that we can make better things that are that are you know soothing to us or, or pointed in different directions. That's a very common AI um, uh, rationale, a very common um, uh, narrative that goes along with applying an AI system, and and it makes it hard to unpack and to say, well, what are the problems here? Where are the disparities? Where, like, you know, how to to say that it's it's more efficient, to, efficient to whom, and to, to you know, are the are the physiological observations um, sort of steady across um, different race and gender uh, characterizations and so on, right? Um, and so so the you have to kind of resist that narrative that says that AI is is optimizing something. And the other thing I would I would say to to the gentleman with his grandson, um, we we say that. Um, we, we say we say that. Pardon? Oh, oh your son. Sorry. It's my grandson. Right. That we say. We say. You know, we'll say that the kids are on their phones all the time, right? And we say that means that they're real. Oh, they're really good at computers because they're on their phones all the time. They're they're not good at computers. They're good at learning other people's interfaces, right? They're good at learning the choices that other people have made, and because they don't recognize anything of that surface as being a choice. Right, that this means you know zoom in and this means zoom out. Right, somebody made that choice and it wasn't the student working at it. And 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 we we have to be able to question those choices. Right, and I feel like an, uh, a, 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 a citizenry that doesn't have access to the basic ways in which computer design works and computers work can't do that. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. The the the, um, the conversation that we were just having about. You know, measuring somatic responses uh, and its connection to artificial intelligence reminds me of just like the the fad ten years ago that Vittorio will remember very well of just of using fMRI to right. settle all questions. Right. This lights up, that lights up. Right. You know, oh, therefore, you know, this can explain for us X or Y phenomena in politics or the world or whatever. And that had all the problems that you just identified, Mark, and that Vittorio knows very well. Uh, fMRI experiments were a good pioneering step in the right direction because they did settle some questions of beauty. The problem is that fMRI is, is hugely inconvenient. But we're talking about a new generation but it's of also wearable a, sensors. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a huge difference because you can have thousands. The N fMRI is very small because it's so expensive. And here mm -hmm. you can, I mean, I have been measuring emotions for the last three years. Face emotion, voice emotion. The last thing is that we have plants, which are highly sensitive movement sensors, and we take the electrostatic discharge, and then we measure emotions of humans from the plant's response. Mm -hmm. That's totally privacy-respecting, and... Well, but, okay, so Nikos, you, you use this idea that, that, the, that the, the goal of art should be to be soothing or to help... The, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't say soothing, I said... Um, inducive to human health. Okay. Physiological condition perfectly, inducive to human health. Perfectly good. Okay. Now, so I feel happier in front of a beautiful painting, and I'm sure I do. Now, however, feeling happy on what time scale? 
you know, one of the whole points about mental health, for example, people who are troubled by their own mental health, is that they need to oftentimes go into some form of treatment. They get psychotherapy and they talk about their problems and they may sit with their therapist and say, ooh, I love this therapist, what a great therapist they're gonna make, I feel so happy when I'm with them. And then a month later they think, this person doesn't like me, I don't understand. And they keep going, hopefully, and keep going and talking. And they work through that. And it involves trust, to go back to your comment, Eunine, there's a trust between two human beings. And over time, the feeling of happiness or contentment really evolves. So I believe that can happen with works of art as well. That's the only reason I mentioned Van Gogh. I think there are other examples. And I, I don't really, I don't think I would probably disagree with you about most, whether I like the same art you, you like or don't like. I'm not so sure I would disagree in most cases. But what I'm saying is that there's an evolution of feelings that you may not pick up in just a moment when you're looking at a, at a work of art, even if it's based on unconscious experience, because there's a trajectory that has some bearing on what we think about the art and, the, and literature in the long term. We work our way through it. There is a difference. You are making an unsupported conjecture, which may or may not be true. It could be true, possibly, in your field. But in art, there are no measurements so far. Measurements have to be done by apparatus exactly like the, the meters. Those experiments have not yet been done. I would like to bring it back to the question of coding and point out that when we talk about code, um, we are talking about mediation. We are talking about something that is created and that the form of creation is not um, transparent. And I think the problem here with this question is partly that we are only talking about visual art, and visual art allows us to um, persist in this very strange assumption that visual art is unmediated, um, that visual art is not encoded. I think your assumptions about our responses to visual art rely on an assumption about visual art that it is not encoded and that it, and that it lacks historicity. But if we, so the, what would you say, for instance, if we had someone from, I don't know, 200 years ago, or from a different country, or from a different social position, and they had the happy meter, and they looked at a piece of visual art, which is entirely encoded, and they had the opposite reaction. So, I mean, what you're basically assuming here is that, that the visual art lacks any artistry as such. And that our response to it is a purely one-to-one -one relationship between this sort of non-mediated thing that it does to our body. Yes, and and, and, and just to add to Nina's point, the assumption also is that, as you were saying earlier, it's unconscious, but not just unconscious, uh, somatically unconscious, which leaves out the you know anything that might be cognitive or intellectual. Um, the you know that art actually might teach us things or change the way that we think or that, that, might, that, that there might be actually conscious responses to um, uh, or processes or, or, you know, or dynamics involved in um, encountering not only visual works of art but especially literary ones. Um, and uh, I mean again, like that's one account of maybe what an artwork does but it's uh, an is and ought to do but, it's, uh, but it seems to me a kind of you know, a pretty small one. Uh, I have an answer, I have an answer to this uh, statement. Uh, based on unconfirmed data, there seems to be a majority of invariant response from all people, all races, all cultures, 
roughly estimated the 80%, and the other 20% is cultural and locally variant. But those of us who work in the topic, we claim, based upon unconfirmed data, that about 80% is invariant across all people. And this is the type of response that's instantaneous. Could I ask you a question? Um, in neuroscience, they're finding out more and more that the placebo effect mm -hmm. is partly based on placebo readiness and receptivity mm -hmm. in the individual. Is there any placebo effect in relationship to how people respond to these different codes and the, the expression of the codes and the effect on the body in what you're describing? Well, the honest answer is um, I have not thought about this uh, deeply, but I think the answer is yes. That's mm -hmm. my suspicion, because you, you are conditioned. And this goes back to the, that we believe Google more than ourselves. And so if the happy meter says I'm happy, then I think I have to be happy. And um, if I look at the painting like Mona Lisa, which has um, been uh, ha given the reputation of being the most beautiful painting in the world, then I have to feel that. And so the happy meter will show me that, and that sort of seems to me to confirm your Yes, your you question. go with the expectation yes. that this yes. is rewarding and fulfilling. Yes. 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 Yeah. Okay, I would like to go, go ahead, Mark. Just, I, I just want to another, put an, another peg in for, for computation and narrative. But before you set up, like one of the, um, uh, one of the uh, uh, positives of, of trying to apply an AI system, right, is um, comes from the, uh, or a set of them come from the, 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 the work you have to do to, to get there, right? So, so the, these questions we're asking about, is it instantaneous response or not? Is it something that you can measure from a watch? Is it, my, is it a mood ring, right? Taking the little camera of my mood, of my mood ring, right? That, that, we, that to, 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 to go along the path of we're going to optimize or we're going to make efficient the creation of a work of art or something like that means that we need to step back and break that down into pieces. So first of all, how are we going to decide that something is great or not? Is it, is it our, our, the physiological response? Is it a survey that we give someone six months later? Are you still thinking about this? Has this changed your opinion? Like, like we can now sit and talk about what are the variables that might, that might give rise to this. And by talking about those setup <coughs> variables, we are doing a lot of actual real work to kind of understand and think about and theorize about the, the ways in which we appreciate art. And, and that's coming from what's fundamentally a computational question in the first place. Yeah. Right. You remind me, I was, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was about to, again, challenge Jonathan about his idea that eventually this will be something that will happen. I'll tell you what I mean. I want to apply what Mark just said. Uh, no, I was thinking in a way I, you may be, again, lightly contradicting yourself. So, lightly. Here, in I'm this sure sense, I have. Anytime. In this sense. Look, if you say, okay, well, the solution that Nikos has suggested, you absolutely reject. That couldn't possibly pr 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 produce art of, you know, equal to a human. Or it's the wrong way to go about performing. Yeah. So the question would be, and I, maybe Mark is beginning to provide an answer. So what do you think, other than time, what else might get us there? I was saying it's the wrong way of judging work. Yeah, no, no, I got that. Uh, right, right. But what would be a way that would allow to, to allow machine learning to generate the sort of thing that we think would be equal to a, a human so-called genius? I mean, first of all, I don't know, because that's not what I do. But the, um, but I, 
of my gather, the, and again, what, I didn't say, I wasn't predicting anything because yeah. I would have no grounds to make any predictions. Mm. I just said I have no problem with the idea that, um, that, very, that you know, very powerful artificial intelligence might be able to write a, a novel that someone might actually read and not understand that it was written by a machine and not a person. But that's right. because actually that, that program has been fed you know, a gajillion novels written by humans. So right. it actually yeah. seems to me that the achievement there is not as huge and kind of world creating as, uh, as, might be, as others might claim. Right. Which is just, you know, it's just a computing uh, uh, step in the computing power mm -hmm. um, uh, in the way that computers work with, um, uh, work with lang you know, linguistic objects that have been you know, around and created by humans with, right. whose computational systems are, you know. Right, but wet. you still seem to be unsure about what criteria you could apply to train the computer. I mean, the ones you, you would say, I guess you'd say, so Nikos's suggestion, at least in visual arts, would be too simplistic and it wouldn't. No, he said that my suggestion is morally wrong. Okay, yes. well, it may no, be. Said, right. But that's a suggestion of judgment. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, so I, yeah. think that the, I think the question of, like, you know, judgment uh, is, is going to be this, or, or the criteria of judgment will be the same whether or not you're reading a book that's written by a computer or whether or not you're yeah. reading a book by a human yeah. being. Yeah. I think maybe, you know, there's a kind of like Turing test level in which it might be interesting to see if something could be, you know, picked up and read and, and right. mistaken. Yeah. Um, um, I think that that tells you more, again, about the powers of the computer than it tells you about the nature of um, you know, of uh, literary fiction uh, or, or literary art, simply because what the computer is doing is trying to actually figure out a way of, like, you know, it's, it's re-engineering something by um, by amassing massive examples right. and uh, and trying to create something that's like them. Um, so that seems to me again, like the puzzle seems to me on the coding side rather than on the judgment side. I think the judgment that would be the same regarding whether you know who yeah. the author is, machine or person. Yeah. Um, I think, however, like there's a kind of practical question there about, for example, this has come up in my world a bit, like how do we, um, how do we work in a, uh, in a like, pedagogical evaluative world, especially with uh, nonfiction writing, when uh, computers can actually like, write papers, for example. So mm -hmm. like, there's, you know, there's plagiarism software, which can detect whether or not a student has um, copied a paper, um, you can track down sometimes, you know, whether or not another human being has written it for money, but whether um, there will soon be uh, uh, programs available uh, that will, can have a machine write a paper for you if you just simply input what the topic is and what the sources well, are. The answer is it has, this has been done. Yeah. And then it can. Okay. Yes. So that presents a real question of judgment, I think, actually, like where, again, like it's where the question is like, you know, has the human written it, has the machine written it, has a real, you know, kind of important practical uh, uh, dimension to it. And we are actually doing what you just described, not for literature, world-class literature, but mm -hmm. for marketing, for simpler um, tasks. Yeah. And we are having humans there in our hardware and our tools, and then checking whether they respond differently to human-designed. We are at the business school, so we use marketing concepts, or from GP, develop from GPT-3. And we don't have the answer yet, but in half a year I can tell you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So no one's raised the possibility that because humans have free will yet, I'm just going to throw that out there. Yeah. <laughs> and computers don't. Wait, wait. Let me finish the question. That they do. That humans have free will, and we may have access to, let's say, an infinite realm, including 
fic fictional worlds that don't exist yet, that haven't been invented, you're not going to have that. You create a fictional world that hasn't been in literature so far. The computer might be able to come close, maybe, but maybe not, but don't, no one seems to have taken that possible slam. Yes, I will take it. Humans have no free will. Humans are manipulated by the media and mm -hmm. by certain uh, uh, elite power stars. I knew you were going to say that. Good. <laughs> so I'm getting my message across. Wonderful. And I know everyone will disagree. That's why we have been conditioned to, uh, to uh, uh, support and pay for garbage artworks and garbage architecture <laughs> all the time because and then they're given prizes in order to keep the, uh, the deception going. Of course, there's no free will, because yeah. free will means that we'll throw the stuff in the trash. <laughs> At least that you just said that the computer is soon smarter than I, because he yes. manipulates us into our feeling of having free will. I think the, the problem is, is <laughs> free will seems to me maybe the, the, uh, to be leading us down a, the wrong path. I mean, because I'm not sure it solves the question for us in the way that you might want it to, but maybe just thinking about this as something about the imagination, right? Okay. So like... Um, it seems like that's what you're trying to get at, like that um, uh, humans have a kind of imaginative capacity to create something that has never existed before, um, uh, you know, a, a, an entire world or just simply a community of, uh, of other humans um, right. and problems specific to them. Right. And, uh, and then is that something that if you give enough examples, um, like right. feed a computer, like, you know, hundreds and thousands of novels, yeah. um, uh, whether or not the computer could figure out uh, what it means to create a world that has yes. never existed right. before, yes. um, based on a kind of, you know, imitation of, uh, of what, it's, what it has read. Right. Um, and whether or not it could do it without lacking the, without having the human imaginative capacity to right. do it on its own without having done all that reading. Um, I think that's, you know, I mean, that, I guess, is a kind of interesting question about, like, what gets added. Um, uh, to um, um, these kind of just acts of basic like imitation and slight adjustment right. and whether or not there's something special that goes into something that's special that would be detectable by a reader right. um, in an artifact that's created by a human versus an artifact that's created by a computer. That's what I meant that's by a, writing in the subtitle the parcellation of what's not there. Yeah. You know, because there are things that are not there yet and computers can't they could, right, the question is, can, can they get so advanced they can imagine something that humans can imagine? And I, I agree, it seems plausible to me, but it's an interesting question. Yeah, I think we keep talking about computers as if they aren't human, right? right. They, they, are, they come from us, like we made them. We've made, we're the ones who are programming yes. them. We're the ones who put the metaphors forward through yeah. which certain things are easy to express or hard to express. We're the ones who are collecting the data. We're the ones who are setting up the, the um, the individual right. criteria upon which it's running and which it's trying to evaluate, and we're the ones putting putting all that together. It's us, yeah. right? Yes. It, so it is a human thing. I, I think that to say that, so I, we yeah, but we've invented hammers too, and to, to a hammer, everything's a nail. Isn't that what they say? <laughs> yes, they say that. Yeah, but what they mean, <laughs> but what they mean by that is that to someone using a hammer, everything appears a nail, a yeah. nail which I think is part uh, of Mark's computers point. Computers are more sophisticated yeah. than hammers. <laughs> I think the scenario but, is. I think that the but the but the, but the so I, my students and I, we, uh, you know, I teach computational journalism, um, and we spend some time with um, with uh, 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 natural language processing, which is sort of computers applied to applied to to 
creation of language, the analysis of language, what have you. Um, and you know, we played with GPT-3 uh, off and on um, and asked them what are the tasks that are, 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 are uh, you know, what, what, kinds of, what kinds of things could you, could, could, could you as a journalist imagine using this for? Right, um, and there are certain like data data chain things you can do. Like when um, New York State started uh, publishing uh, statistics about monkeypox, it was putting it out on the on the health department website as a sentence. Um, you know, last week there were five cases in New York City. There were three cases in Suffolk County. There were, and GPT three would would do. You could ask it to dutifully take that number and put it into a that those data put it into a table, and it would happily do that for you. You could also ask it write me a, a something about uh, you know a, a story about what's happening at the border now. Well. Problem is, GPT-3 has a, is not uh, is trained up to like was it 2014 something like that. So so if you if you mention something about Ukraine, it's it's not a contemporary situation. It's a, a past situation. But I think that what I wanted to say is that the the, the way you interact with GPT-3, um, it's looking to complete an idea, right? It's it's trained on. Um, uh, 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 it's tra it's trained on a, a, a bank of literature, as you suggest. But what the underlying prediction problem is trying to do is to say, given that I'm this far in the sentence or this far into the paragraph or whatever it is, what comes next, right? And it's always just like guessing, sort of what comes next to generate. So you can start and you can do what's called prompt programming and start it, you know, off in a direction. So easiest kind of prompt, um, uh, you could say English colon hi. Uh, French colon bonjour, English colon skyscraper, French colon, and it'll give you what the French translation of skyscraper is. I don't know what the French translation of skyscraper is. Thank you. Um, and then you could ask it to, you could start to ask it to, to you know, uh, here's, uh, here's an example of uh, five Yelp reviews of a particular thing uh, identified to that have sort of uh, racially biased, whatever, right? Like, so you can start to sort of weave it in and, and, and the, there are various ways in which you might interact with uh, a GPT-3 through, through divine, de defining these prompts. Um, and you can chain them together and almost start to build programming ideas. That I believe you could sort of teach the fundamentals of computational thinking through a GPT-3-style interface because it's all just language at that point. You're not you know, do, you know, for I and one to something or other, do this, right? Like you are, you are pulling apart computational, um, computational questions by, by giving instructions to a machine and seeing what comes back. And there's always this moment of, oh, I didn't expect that. Oh, look at that, what happened there, right? And there's a little bit of delight and whatever that comes from interacting with these systems. And I think, I think again, it comes down to, 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 to being open enough and having the exposure to, to what these computational systems are all about, to be able to ground that conversation and to say, all right, this is where it might be useful, this is where it might be dangerous, um, and we can start to make choices. I think, thank you. I think we should open the floor up to questions. And please, I'm gonna put the microphone up there. Come on up here. <laughs> So th thank you so much for this lively discussion. I'm here since 10, and in the heating meter, I think you scored the highest uh, figures so far. So thanks. Um, I have a comment and, and, and a question. The comment is, uh, 
Being, having involved in some empirical research on uh, aesthetics, um, I think one has to distinguish the tools from the questions. So with the same tools, you can ask different questions. You can be interested in spotting uh, uh, the place in the brain where beauty sits, which is a few millimeters away from where the sublime sits, which is a legitimate uh, uh, question to be, uh, to be asked, but it's not my cup of tea. Or you can be more interested in the experience uh, in front of some cultural artifacts. And then starts the difficulty, because uh, our experience is always situated. So you can do an, an easy experiment. Think about your favorite piece of music and listening to it while you're contemplating your favorite landscape with respect to when you're filling your tax form. So the physiology, up to a certain point, is clearly the same. You, you uh, activate the same auditory pathway, blah, blah, blah. But then, uh, in the end, the experience is completely different. So uh, one of the greatest difficulties is to contextualize the experience within the individual uh, in different time of his life, so it, it, it's incredibly difficult. The question uh, uh, relates to the parallel between uh, narrative uh, and coding. So if we can draw such a parallel and uh, uh, entertain the idea that uh, narrative is a particular form of coding, can we also push it to say, uh, to the point, um, to entertain the idea that they are more similar than they might look at first sight because narrative in itself is the outcome of a specific uh, uh, cognitive technology. There are people who are, uh, have been suggesting that uh, the first form of narrative stems from the syntax of movement, the chaîne opératoire. Leroy Gourin, for example, was one of the earliest uh, 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 proposer of such a theory. So can, can this be this idea? Uh, how does it sound to you? Do you think it uh, is legitimate or? I don't think that I quite understand this, uh, the claim that narrative is, is based on a syntax of movement. I think at its fundamentals, narrative is based on an expression of causation. And but the root can be traced uh, uh, in a time of human evolution when uh, the main activity was uh, utilitarian. So before getting to the uh, symbol-making uh, uh, phase where you create objects whose main purpose is uh, uh, not to serve a specific uh, uh, need, but that the only purpose is to say something to someone else. Uh, can we trace, uh, 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 is there uh, a red line, uh, a continuum between the motor syntax that enables the production of tools, for example, with the motor syntax, uh, the narrative syntax that enable you to, to produce uh, uh, an art, a fictional narrative. Mm. Or does it sound crazy? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a, I mean uh, it's an interesting way of thinking. I mean, I'm not, I'm not really sure how you would explore the phenomena, to be honest. I mean, like, or, or it seems like a, a good prompt for thinking. Um, yeah, it's kind of a gesture story. Yeah, a little bit. Um, um, I think that, I mean, I share Yanina's intuition that there's a kind of, you know, deep 
deeply causal structure to most narratives if we want to get them to their simplest structure. Um, you know, uh, establishing connections between one event and another. Um, um, the the um, um, on the side of response, like why is it that we seem to you know um, have a kind of appetite again? That's sort of that's just so sort of phrase, but uh, for want of a better term, like why we have an appetite for stories and narratives um, presents. It's you know is to come at it from the other side, sort of more you know on the sort of level of like you know. Uh, um, consumption rather than the production of stories or what stories are. Um, and uh, it could be there that some of the kind of, some of the deep history you're talking about actually plays an important role. Um, maybe I'll just stop there. I think it's a very, uh, it's a complicated question. I, I think we're all having a little difficult time wrapping our minds around, not, not because it's crazy, because you asked, I wouldn't have used that adjective. But I, no, you but asked, I, but yeah, no, I don't. No, 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 I, I really mean that. I don't know. I, don't, I think it's interesting to think, you know, the one criticism of some books is the, some literature is like, you know, nothing happens in this story, right? And that, that doesn't mean that's a valid, that's only one way you can look at it, but more advanced forms of literature, there, were, there are more stories where it's more internal what goes on in the story. Right? And some people don't go for that because obviously Homer, in Homer, a lot of action's happening. Causation and and movement are closely related. I mean, oh, causation, for sure. we know, was based on the idea of one billiard ball, ball hits another. That's sort of the paradigm for causation. But, so, yeah, I yeah. think there's a connection, too, between your initial comment and your question, which is that, um, um, and I agree entirely with the, your, the formulation that you gave of the, of the situatedness of any aesthetic response, um, uh, which I think raises some real problems for the idea that you could just kind of connected to something like a happiness meter, which, you know, is, you know, intrinsically decontextualized. It's just like attached to you. Um, um, and, uh, and I think that that raises questions around how you would, um, I mean, uh, most of the way that we think and talk about artificial intelligence and, it's, and the way that it composes stories is unsituated. That is, the, the program has no situation. It's, uh, it's, it's lifted out from the world. Um, it, uh, and its only access to the world is through what we feed it, um, through other stories and through the, our writing of code. Um, that seems to me, I mean, the picture that you were giving, which I know is one that you hold closely, is uh, of a kind of much of a more embodied interaction with the world. Not embodied in the sense of, you know, the kind of, unmoving physiology of someone who is just reading or looking at something and then attached to it to uh, you know uh, a meter but actually acting in the world moving around in it um, and there I think uh, you know I agree with you entirely yeah. anyone else Hi. good to see you I have a couple of colleagues here I'm uh, <laughs> one of Jonathan's friends at Yale um, I was struck by the conversation about code uh, from the beginning in that it didn't seem that we could ever, like there was ever really a consensus about what a code is, that there's a lot of sort of implicit understanding about who, like the difference between, you know, code switching in language and computer code and like, so I, you know, while I was sitting there, I Googled a little bit of etymological sort of, I like to know the history of where these words come from and code comes from codex. Mm. It comes from the book 
of laws that were established that everyone kind of referenced as a kind of index of cultural authority, right? That was the, the sort of where we get the word code. The idea of code as a, a cipher or system of signals and the rules which govern their use isn't until 1808, and then you know in subsequent decades you get Morse code and things like that. But the idea of it as a system of expressing information and instructions in, in the form usable by a computer is not until 1946 and 47 when it becomes a verb. Um, so what I want to ask is, do you understand code as being something that a computer is the sort of repository or archive of, or is it something that the computer does or that we do to a computer? And I ask because it strikes me as an interesting question about decoding. Does the computer decode what we give it? And my, my assumption is no, the computer doesn't understand what's encoded, it just processes information. But because it's described as code, there's almost a way in which the machine is sort of like, from, its, from the origin of the term, takes on this sort of humanistic uh, aura, that it's, it's this thing that can do what we do, which is decode. But in fact, machines don't decode. They just, they just churn, right? right. They, 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 I mean, I guess you could program something to decode something else, but that's, that's different than saying in the way that we would decipher a cipher, right? Mm -hmm. So tell me about code. Why is it, uh, why, is, why are we using this, this, this term to describe what computers do? Well, I would um, uh, actually just say the other way around, and I would say, a computer is capable of um, repeatedly, uh, exactly in the same way, as many times as I wanted, executing my code, whereas if you have a codex and you have humans interpreting it, then you have all this context, and so it's not repeatable. And you don't know because you have your, um, the mood of the day and many other influences. And so I think, in, in that sense, the computer is far more consistent. I think the, all of the senses, the etymological senses that you um, gave, I think they're all fairly consistent, and they do all come back to this sense of a set of rules. And whether that's a set of rules for um, behavior, in the case of when you give a computer certain lines of code, those are then rules that, don't, that determine what it will do, what it will produce, or if it's a code, say, in narrative, the fundamental set of rules that govern what a narrative is, that all of those different senses of code seem to me like compatible with this idea of a set of rules. So, I mean, I guess I, if I were to say what is a code, I'm comfortable with it's a set of fundamental principles or rules that govern the generation of something further. Anything else? Okay. Which is, yes, what you said is true, but the asymmetric conditions of the creation of code is inseparable from the cryptographic history, right? So understanding that, because that's one thing that I, I'm a magician and I track asymmetric information conditions and I interact with a lot of academics. And one thing I find fascinating is that in these discussions, the asymmetric 
information condition associated with codes and information systems in general is not so well tracked or brought up in these conversations. So to his point, I think there's something much more deep under what he's saying that's actually quite relevant these days to track how this information, what's the nature of information, we know unique and interoperable data is incredibly valuable. But it really takes a kind of cryptographer. My father-in-law was a um, information, well, he was a, um, a naval commander in Holland who worked at NATO Command. And then I have a lot of friends in mathematics at places like the Institute for Defense Analysis. And I think they'd have a lot to say about this conversation. So, and, and I think those things are especially relevant today so I, I'm just backing up your point, really. Thank you. Well, thank you. One more. One more. Uh, thank you for another wonderful panel. I want to make a question that's going to connect us with the previous panel. Is the publishing of, let's say, a computer-generated novel misinformation if I don't disclose that it's been generated by a computer? <laughs> is that a question? Is it misinformation? <laughs> Qualify as misinformation if I mislead people thinking that it may have been created by a human being while it's computer generated? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, sure. I mean, in some level, I mean, if, you, if you defined it as information, um, the question is whether or not it's... Well, I'm not sure, because the computer has been generated by humans. There you go. Right. It's a good answer. I think, uh, like in journalistic applications, when a, uh, when a, when a, a story has been written, uh, it has been automated, even if it's human edited, the, the byline suggests that it's uh, it's been done by it by an AI. Mm -hmm. by but we do we do attribute Middlemarch to George Eliot, right? <laughs> even though it's he, she wasn't a man. Right? That's my point. <laughs> yeah, what does it matter? What does it matter? Yes, yeah. yeah, so the question, I mean, like, I think the, 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 from what I understand about the previous panel was the, about misinformation with a, you know, which has a real kind of social effect um, or a political effect. And um, in this case, I mean, I, uh, you know, it might, um, that would depend upon the context in which the information mattered. As such, it's just, you know, it would be... Uh, it would be either, like, in some literal sense, misleading or withholding, but uh, it wouldn't necessarily that whether or not it counts as misinformation um, in the uh, the kind of social meaning of that term today, which is really quite important, would depend entirely on the context. I think. I think it would be misinformation if you claimed that it was a work of nonfiction, but it would not be misinformation if you gave it the label of fiction. <laughs> All right, well, everyone, I want to thank you again for an amazing roundtable. Um, I want everyone to know that we're returning here tomorrow morning at 11 for uh, the first roundtable is entitled Our Natural Language Generators for Real, which is about GPT-3 that we spoke of tonight. And, um, and then we'll end the conference with Is the Universe a Metaverse? And that begins at 2 p.m. So thank you again, everyone. It was wonderful.